Welcome to the Market Cuddle, episode three. I'm Gary, and I'm here with Philip. And today we're going to talk about investment and finance. We're going to be a, a bit more focused today, aren't we, Philip? Yes. Today's topic, we're going to talk about actually how do I invest? I want to buy some things in companies. I want to buy shares. How do I do it? Okay. So we we yeah we're going to go into kind of the investment vehicles. Can we call them? Yes, that's probably a good description. So we you know you can you can pop along and buy a share. A single share in a company, you can buy collections of shares or indexes. Um, so what, what's on your mind today? What's the vehicles you want to talk about specifically? Right. You can buy an individual share, you can buy an individual bond, but unless you're very, very big in the amount of money you have to invest, it means you're probably related to one or two companies, one or two bonds. It's not very well diverse if you're small. Now, there are other things that have been around that are called collective investment schemes or collective investment vehicles, um, which allow you to pool your money with other savers to allow you to buy small amounts of lots and lots of companies or lots and lots of bonds so you actually have a far more balanced portfolio and to do it at a cheap inexpensive way and so they're the things we want to talk about today now some of these things you might well have heard the names of such as investment trusts unit trusts exchange traded funds venture capital trusts but they are structured differently and today we're going to talk a little bit about how they operate and how they work and how some of them are grouped together because they have different pros and cons with each of them which not everyone understands Right, so we're talking a little bit then about having, again, a balanced portfolio, diversity, you know, so you're not rolling up and buying a, I don't know, a share in Marks and Spencers or, you know, Royal Dutch Shell or anything like that. We're talking about groups of shares that give you a bit more balance, is that fair? That is correct. And how you can do that in a cost-efficient manner if you haven't got a huge sum to invest. So you've been talking about a few investment types there, Philip. Do you want to sort of expand on those? Yes. Well, of these collective schemes where you pull your money together with other investors, they probably break out into two types. Those that are called open-ended and those that are called closed-end. And I think it's a bit of time when I try and explain a bit about the two types. So on the open-ended types, you've got things such as unit trust, open-ended investment companies or OECIs, exchange traded funds, ETFs, for example. On the closed-ended investment schemes, you have investment trusts and venture capital trusts and private equity trusts. Now, they operate very differently. Open-ended investment vehicles, these ones where every time you want to invest your pound, a new share or a new unit is created. Every time you want your money out, that share, when redeemed, is cancelled. So the underlying amount of assets that are being managed can grow and contract. With a closed-end investment vehicle, they operate like a proper company and they're exchanged on, their, their shares are traded on the stock market. So they have an initial public offering where they raise a certain amount of money and they use that to go buy the shares or the bonds that the fund is going to invest in. But I want to take my money out. The actual fund manager does not need to sell any of the underlying assets in the fund because he's he's not trading with me because it's a company an investment trust or a venture capital trust the shares are traded on the stock market i go to another person who wants to buy the share and sell it to him so this means that what i buy and shell the share at could be higher or lower than the actual underlying net asset value of the fund portfolio and that's really different for closed-end investment schemes Whereas in open-ended investment schemes, you're trading at pretty much at net asset value. So when I redeem, I'm selling at 
a little bit less than net asset value. And when I buy, it's a little bit more because that's how they get their fees in the bid offer spread between what you buy and what you sell at. It is an interesting liquidity problem you get with open-ended compared to close-ended where in a close-ended scheme, the manager is never forced to sell if he doesn't want to in a, a falling market, for example, Whereas in an open-ended scheme, when you have some market wobbles or some crashes and we, the retail investors, want to pull their money out, he's got a panic sell today so you can take the money out. So you can actually force higher losses than maybe sometimes in a similar product there's a closed scheme. But if you're looking for you know, flexibility and a broad range of things to invest in, are there more open-ended funds on the market than there are closed-ended? You know, what, what's the spread here? You've already talked a little bit about the OEICs and the ETFs, exchange-traded funds, within the open-ended. You know, what's what's the split with these? Is it, is it just a lot more of those open-ended funds? Most of the investment vehicles are available for retail investors in the UK are in the open-ended space. Unit trusts. There's lots of them. We've been selling those. The first, I think, was sold by M&G in the 1930s when they first came out. The open-ended investment companies, the OECIs, are the European variants of them. So they're like the ones that, they're the unit trusts, but they're allowed to be sold in the European Union. Exchange-traded funds, ETFs, they're relatively new. They started around the late 70s. And they effectively, most of them are just trackers. You're just buying an index of some description. Um, but they ballooned recently in value in the numbers of them because they're very, very cheap. In America, they've taken up an awful lot of the market, maybe over 40% by now. In Europe, they're not as well known, but then they haven't been around as long as they have been in America. But when you look by volume, open-ended schemes are by far the most popular. So you talked a little bit there, you, you put a couple of terms out there, you said about trackers. So within that, for the ETFs, you're talking about like indexes like, let's say the FTSE 100, the S&P 500 in America, you, those kind of products. And you also said about them being cheap. You mean the fees that, that you pay, because I guess with either of these, which we haven't got down the road of fees yet, but either the open-ended or the close-ended investment vehicles, there are fees there are associated fees. with those. Yes. Maybe we can we can come on to the fees in a little bit, a little bit more detail between the sort of general types a little bit later on. But you're saying that the exchange-traded funds you can buy indexes, yes, like you like you would with. So historically, in Europe, we would have tracker funds. And they will be badged up as unit trusts or open-ended investment vehicles. And they're generally, some of them were quite expensive. Um, some, some of them, horribly, were paying almost a percent for something which is managed by a computer. That's about the same price as what an actively managed fund was being charged. And there are lots of what they called closet trackers, which were co called managed, but weren't. They just hugged the index. The main thing with the exchange traded funds was the aggressive American entrance came in and they said, yeah, we're selling it at 0.1%, 0.2% fees, which are not quite as cheap as they are in America, but significantly against anything else offered in Europe. Yeah, so I guess <clears> in terms of the impact on your return on your investment in the long in, you know, in the long term, that's that's a huge difference. If you just want to buy something like a you know a, a FTSE 100 tracker fund, then you know paying an order of magnitude less is is massive in the long term. Oh yes, it? and yes. it's just a, it's almost like a fit and forget. You you buy your units. You're there just thinking, going, off you go. how cheaply how yeah. do they make? And it? when you talk about <clears throat> active, you're really talking about in that instance, the active management is having a fund manager buying and selling exactly. things within that fund, right? Okay. And, and that's why you're paying for that service. That's, that's why right. It's the higher because know. he just doesn't buy the he doesn't buy the index. He buys selected things in the index, and has a different weighting. So because it should outperform. 
or at least it should be less volatile depending on what his fund's mandate is. Or she. Or, sorry, or she. So or he or she, their fund managers, uh, whatever their fund mandate is, whether it's less volatility or to outperform uh, financially. Yeah, So and so I guess what, what, what I think I'm hearing is that, you know, the open-ended funds, let's say I'm the investor that's just i'm happy to put my money into the stock market to hopefully make some returns and i want to buy things i things i I, i've heard of which is if we've said it could be uk companies could be um, american companies or emerging markets that's not a bad route to go down again it comes back to a balanced portfolio but you wouldn't necessarily say that going and buying illiquid assets things you can't get your money back on very quickly to an open-ended fund is going to be the smart the smart move you really want to go for open-ended funds where you know what they're buying you can pretty much you know there are funds i guess that don't advertise everything they've bought but if you look at their top 10 you can go oh yeah i've heard of most of those that that's a i'm going to use safe in a relative Relative, relative terms relatively <clears throat> safe in within that risk environment we we know that we're if we're going in the stock market we know it's a risky environment but there are you know there are angles on that risk yes and the interesting thing is investment trusts are probably the first collective investment scheme ever created certainly in the united kingdom some of the first ones created are well-known brands today such as foreign colonial these were created in the late victorian or mid-victorian period so we're talking 1860s 18 80s that sort of time span and they've been going ever since um and as they were the first ones to allow relatively small amounts uh, lots of people with relatively small amounts of money to invest these are the guys that paid for most of the railways were built in america in europe in britain because it's the only way you could raise that sort of cash and then spend it so they have been they've had they have a lot of pedigree and they've been around for a long time but they're not the panacea there are certain things they work for better than others Historically, open-ended trusts were probably more popular because of people used to pay commissioned, whereas investment trusts didn't. Now, that's all ended with the uh, European Union's recent regulation to curtail the amount of commission you can get from selling financial products. But they had a good many decades where they were oversold by many financial advisors because they paid a commission. So you talked a little bit there about the, a little bit about the history. So they're both open-ended and closed-ended investment vehicles have been around for a while but let's just take so take i'm going to give you an example here say i want to invest in some relatively well-known uk companies i've got you know not a huge amount of money to invest but you know significant for me you've said the fees are probably lower if you go down the road of a unit trust or etf so the open-ended funds than possibly an investment trust why what what's the case for me going and investing in an investment trust that invests in similar things to a, to a to an open-ended or unit trust let's okay. say yes that's an interesting question i mean there are several com- there are several investment trusts that basically invest as as income funds of uk com- predominantly uk companies 90% uk companies and there's a lot of unit trusts and open-ended investment vehicles that also invest exactly like that they invest for the income now the two major differences are in an open-ended trust fund such as unit trusts and OECIs, any money they come in from dividends from the assets they own, they have to all pay out. If some of those companies decide that we can't afford the dividends anymore and we have to cut, they immediately have to cut what they pay out. Closed-end investment trusts are different. They have two. They can hold back a certain percentage, I think it's about 15 to 20% of the dividends they get paid, they can hold a reserve and pay it out in the future. 
So this means there are some things that are called, shall we say, divid uh, dividend heroes. Investment trusts that have been around for a long time and have been able to raise, every year, raise their dividend for like the last 50 years. And there's others that have been able to never cut a dividend in almost 50 years. They may not have been able to raise it every year, but they never be able, they never had to cut. So they can use their reserves to smooth out the income stream. So if you're buying the investment for its income, they're far more smoother than if you buy it from a unit trust. Another major difference is gearing. Investment trusts, because these are investment companies, are allowed to borrow money and use that borrowed money to buy more shares. And that's called gearing. Not all investment trusts take up that opportunity. And this is where you probably want a professional manager who runs that fund to. There are times when you, if you do want to gear, you want to gear your investments. And there's times when you want to reduce that gearing. So when you're coming up to a recession to almost zero or zero. But that is another way of enhancing your overall portfolio uh, performance over time. So over these fund investment trusts and unit trusts that have been doing the same thing, often run by the same manager. And when you start looking at them over a very long time, say 10 year periods, quite often you'll find the investment trusts outperform the same unit trust for those because of those two differences. E even including the fees? Which we now, fees about. are a bit difficult because it comes down to how big you are. Unit trusts charge a flat percentage fee. So it didn't matter if you had a million pounds or a thousand pounds it's still the flat fee. Investment trusts, you have to buy the underlying shares from a stockbroker, which is often a fixed fee, a fixed amount of money. Some of them, it's about 10 to 12 quid these days and quite a lot of the internet brokers. So you can get a bit cheaper if you go to some of the others. And then there's a fixed fee for the actual management of the investment fund. Unit trusts, they can be a little bit murky about how much you actually pay for your transaction costs to buy them because it's all wrapped up in your bid offer spread about what you're buying and selling. There's a slight difference in what you buy price to what you buy and sell. But generally, if you've not got a huge amount of money, say under £5,000, for example, a unit trust will probably be cheaper because you haven't got to pay these fixed fees. If you're investing £50,000, the equivalent investment trust might well be cheaper because it's a fixed cost and you're dividing that £10 to £15 to buy the shares over a much, much greater number of them. So it all comes down to the size of you as an investor, depending on which one might be cheaper. It's not clear-cut, always this one, always that one. So so there's an, an element of scale there. And you know, for those people trying to get started in investing and you're going to do a you know pound cost averaging or dollar cost averaging where you just every month you're buying whatever the price of that that that, that product is every month and, and that ticks up what you're really saying is until you've got a portfolio or a investment that's going to be north of five thousand pounds which takes a little while to get there i guess you are better off looking at the open-ended funds. So is there any um, examples of exchange-traded funds and investment trusts run by the same manager? Exchange-traded funds are very different. They're probably not run by... Exchange-traded funds aren't really managed by a person. They tend to be you're buying a tracker. Now, there's a lot to be said about what you're tracking. There's a lot of these index funds, you, uh, indexes you buy, such as the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, the DAX uh, in Germany, the CAC in um, France, uh, Nikkei 250 in Japan, or the FTSE 100. And you just buy them. 
that's mainly what exchange traded funds track. Okay, so really what we're talking about when we talk about managers that are running two types of funds, really it's the open-ended would be a unit trust and a closed-ended would be an investment trust. And, and again, going back, we said, you know, there's economies of scale, I guess, but when you've got more to invest, potentially the investment trust is a better vehicle in terms of return, longer term. For a similar product, that that's, can often be the case. The other, the other <clears> thing you mentioned earlier on was net asset value with regard to the investment trusts. So if I'm going back to that example where I'm, I, so I'm, you're, you're leading me at the moment with what I want to buy, which is, you know, well-known UK companies down the road of an investment trust. Let's assume I've got that £50,000. What am I looking for then, or what does the net asset value tell me about that investment trust before I before I invest? So the net asset value is effectively the sell price of all of the underlying shares or bonds within that portfolio in the investment trust. If they sold them all at this day, at this time, that's the market price, so therefore that's what they'll be worth. And it gives you an idea, because then you can say, well, now compare that to the share price of the company. In the ideal world, the net asset value and the share price should be the same thing. So when the net asset value and the share price of the investment trust is the same, a zero number there, so it's a zero premium or a zero discount. But because there can be periods where maybe there's a bit of a panic and people want to sell because they need the cash back for whatever reason, you could say, actually, the share price of the investment trust is worth less than the, than all the actual underlying shares if they were sold immediately. And that's called a discount. And there's sometimes when people expect, actually, this thing's going to grow because faster than the underlying asset have actually been calculated because sometimes they can be a week behind the numbers they report it can have a premium so it's actually the share price is slightly more than all of the underlying assets and that can be an opportunity so certainly where you've got areas where you have very illiquid investments emerging markets uh, shares or emerging market bonds for example quite often the investment trust always trades at a five to ten percent discount purely because everyone knows that even in a good time these things are difficult to sell at a premium although that's not always the case but but it also means that when everyone else is panicking the opportunity you can buy at a bigger discount opens itself up whereas you never get that with the open-ended trusts right so i think what what i'm hearing then is that with an investment trust you'd want to ideally buy with a discount ideally yes however some of the really big investment trusts have a policy of creating new shares or buying their own shares back to try and maintain the premium discount to a very narrow band because to a lot of retail investors big swings are scary they don't understand why so they, they've decided that that's not a good thing so they actually create more shares when there's big demand to bring the premium down and they buy their own shares back when it goes to a big discount there's quite a few of the big ones do that just to try and smooth that out but then there's others which are more shall we say the more specialists in the market or the ones that are very illiquid and just go generally if you're investing in emerging markets you you doing it because you know there's group opportunities but it could be very volatile whereas if you're just buying ones that invest predominantly in the uk big FTSE 100 company listings pay me a dividend you may not feel comfortable with wild swings in your net asset value relative to your share price so that's why those investment trusts have made active decision to try and minimize those right so so okay so the discount is an opportunity because i guess like we said they're a company if they decide to shut the company and it is running at a discount you get your money back plus plus the discount yes on that on that share price Okay, but I, but I think what we're really saying is for the average investor who doesn't have £50,000 or more than £5,000 even, the unit trusts or the unit trust equivalent would be probably the better bet depending yeah. on 
fees, etc. Or we could say, well, actually, if you're if you're wanting for to look for a, a fund that's looking at an index or a big big group of companies of a particular type, then, a, then an exchange traded fund, the ETFs, are relatively Fisher. cheap on fees. You can go and you can start there. Yeah. It it kind of then takes you away from the risks of buying individual companies. Yes. And, and gives you a bit a bit more security, as we said, with the, with the relative view on risk anyway that comes with um, investing in these. Funds. It's probably worth saying. Uh, we didn't bring this up at the beginning, but the reason why you want to invest in, say, a collection of companies, not just one, is you can always pick the one company that goes bust. If you've got a group of them, the probabilities that they're all going to go bust, and you'd like to hope that you can, with a bit of active thought, you can miss the ones that are likely to go bust. But there will be periods where the market doesn't always perceive the value to be equal amongst all of them, either because of the way their trading performance has been, or perceptions of their industry. And often you can find that the market's perception that industry isn't always correct going oh they're never going to make much money it's a dead and dying industry and then five years later years later you're going actually no it's it's doubled it's grown and the market's just missed it so it gives you there that's why you probably want to have a number of shares in a number of companies and collective investment schemes are probably a most cost efficient way of doing it unless you're really really rich then you could do your be your own fund manager at a reasonable price okay so really what we're saying within these open-ended and closed-ended funds they are classed as collective investment schemes correct trying to keep a balanced portfolio and a number of companies within one of these funds whether it's open-ended or closed-ended you know is is it better to just go with a really broad or a, or a fund that's got a lot of companies in it what's the what's the the right approach there well it can often be found that oh if i just buy the entire index of everything i've got the best perfect uh, balanced portfolio and unfortunately that's not the case because you've bought the good companies and the basket cases are going to go bust because you've bought the index so there comes a point where you've got the individual company going bust risk now there's a general rule there's a lot of stuff that's been looked at there's been a lot of um, investigation and on investments of this type and portfolio size and they're saying somewhere between 30 to 50 ish shares of reasonably large size companies is about the optimum amount somewhere we're trying those is the optimum number to mitigate your individual company risk without adding significant amounts of extra charges because you've got more more companies you have to buy however there can be a lot of cases where you're going that's good if you're very large companies if you're looking at lots of small companies particularly small startup companies you find that the probability they're going to go bust is probably quite high or a lot higher than you get with other ones so you actually maybe need a lot more than that so it really does depend on what part of the market you really actually interest investing in another one you'll find is if you're buying indexes often they're indexed on their market weight so this is where say if you take the FTSE 100 and this is where most indices you look at it's all what's called market cap based or market weighted where they take all the shares times it by their share price and that tells you how many how big the company is billions of pounds so I don't know last time I looked uh, Shell was like a 30 billion 100 billion pound company HSBC was a 90 billion pound company and that's so you that size is how they're weighted so when you buy FTSE 100 you'll probably find that the top five make up maybe 50 to 20% of what you're buying and all the rest are then tiny fractions. So what you can often find there is they dominate the moment. If, if Shell doesn't move, the FTSE don't move. 
and particularly when you're buying, say, the FTSE All Share Index. The small companies, which over time tend to grow more and produce more value, dwarfed by the big boys. So if you want to buy, oh, I'm interested in the small companies, you may not want a fund that invests in everything. You might want to say, actually, no, I want to buy one that's specifically looking at the small ones. One, because the manager specifically does his research on small companies and doesn't waste his time on the big boys, but also because there he's picking the best small companies that should grow. The same was when you look at the big boys and you're going, I'm buying it for dividends. You're trying to look at somebody who's going, right, who pays the best dividends and who pays the ones that are most likely to grow for the next 10 years? And that's a different way of looking at it than just, oh, just buy the index, the world index. Okay, so look at an area that you're interested in, do your research and look for something that's got a sensible balance for that area, whether it's large companies, small companies, you know, you said about you know, 20 to 50 companies, wasn't it, for a, for a, a fund investing in large capital companies and any of the other platforms that you you could use to invest will tell you how big the market capitalization is, i.e. how many shares there are of that individual company when you look at what, what they're investing in. I think it's that example of me wanting to invest in larger companies, that's that's a good a good example. I can also then maybe look at smaller companies. But you've said we want to maybe look at more holdings, more numbers of companies within those funds. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on with regard to these collective investment schemes, both the open-ended and closed investment funds? The only thing that can be that's often talked about, when it, should I do index investing or should I pay for a manager? There's something to be said about, actually, it's a way of looking at things. In, uh, fu- uh, Index-linked investing is the general cheaper option. And if for very big companies that are well-known, it, it sometimes can be very difficult to outperform the market. The only thing certain investment trusts can do it, but there you're not trying to outperform the capital market, you're trying to outperform the income stream. So it's a different way of looking at it. Their structure is to try and maintain a steady and constant increasing in dividend. Whereas if you're just looking for out and out capital growth, you're then stock picking. So you've got to pick the right person. Or sometimes it can be, yeah, yeah, you just want to buy the big index. There's another one when it comes to exchange traded funds, there's two types. There's what's called synthetic and asset backed. The asset backed ones are more like a traditional index fund. They buy they buy the individual shares exactly like the index. Synthetic, on the other hand, is where the investment bank offering that exchange traded fund is just saying it's a one way bet. I'm the un- I'm I'm backing that fund. If it goes up, you- I pay you. You pay me fees. So there are some things there with hopefully the modern regulation. Historically, I used to be quite scared of synthetic ones. Maybe they're not as bad as maybe they think because the regulation has significantly improved. Although I still don't own any at the minute, but I'm more considering to look at them than I was ever before. But there might be some ones where if you're trying to invest in a passive world and an index fund in quite illiquid things such as corporate bonds uh, any sort of bond emerging markets uh, emerging market bonds or any of these strange and weird and wonderful new things they're trying to look at an etf that replicates it might be expensive and actually quite risky because when the panic comes they can't sell either and for those things and a synthetic one might not be a bad thing to have because there it's the the counterpart the investment bank they providing their solvent they just pay and also for those things say you want to invest in vietnam vietnam is not an easy country in which to buy underlying shares in as a foreigner period so therefore it's one of the ways you could actually invest in that area so that is the only other thing you might possibly want to consider with etfs and in and in whether you want to be passive investing through a, a tracker or an active with a manager the one the one thing that sort of 
I think about you you mentioned about you know being able to invest in difficult areas to invest in I was thinking more for people who are looking for a fund that they could feel comfortable with I was watching a documentary recently where it was said that people look for a name you know a famous person that is you know famous investment manager who therefore they think that that's a good fund to go for do you look for a name or do you look at the fundamental numbers underlying the fund when I first started I went for a name because I didn't really have any experience to know what I was going with if I'd heard the company or I'd heard the investment company's name I probably then looked at those I didn't look at the guys that were really small nowadays now I've had time and I've been several many years of practice at this now I'm prepared I actually don't so much look at the name although it's difficult not to be attracted by some of the f- large companies or some of their star fund managers because some of them have done very well but also when you looked at some of the open-ended unit trusts I've looked at I started to look at some of the more boutique investment managers who specialize in certain areas there's quite a few that were specialized just in emerging markets or just in bond markets one example would be Royal London they tend to specialize in corporate bonds and government bonds they don't have everything from emerging markets there that's what they're mainly famous for and they do quite a good job at that some of the other ones there such as Somerset Capital Management they're relatively new specialized just in emerging markets they don't bother with uh, bigger bigger markets and the same with investment trusts there's several smaller ones now which are specialists looking either emerging markets or specialist corporate debt sections as well as the big boys that trust invest in everything so it depends it's taken me time to know what it is to look for that allows me to look beyond just the star names but yeah it's difficult not to look at the star names because some of the star fund managers have delivered okay so you pick you pick the name which i think is reasonable but i guess is it fair to say that there there's the name once they've perform well and there's no guarantee that those that performance is going to continue into the into the future and maybe that's a subject for another another podcast okay so i think there's a lot to think about there philip about the investment vehicles and again i think you take your own individual circumstance and the amount you've got to invest and the fundamentals behind those funds before you go and make any decisions is that is that a fair that is correct so well thanks for thanks to philip for joining us today and we'll see you next time thanks very much this program has been presented for information and educational purposes only None of the information or content of the programme is to be taken as an offer, opinion or recommendation by the programme's hosts or guests to buy or sell securities. Nor is it intended to provide legal, tax, accounting, commercial or financial advice. Opinions and comments are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investing involves risk as prices go up or down based on a number of factors. Always consider consulting a financial professional before investing.